This episode is sponsored by SoFi. Borrow more with less money down. Find out how at SOFI.com. Hey, what's going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Education costs money, but then again, so does ignorance. My name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you today, and what are you drinking? Dude, good, good. It's finally nice in Hoboken. It was like raining for the past few weeks. Was it? Yeah. And and I mean, I'm a little bit better because I'm, I'm back to drinking some of the classics. I got a magic hat, stealing time. It's a, a summer wheat. And it's delicious. Is it like stealing T H Y M E? They're not that clever. Oh man. Okay. Actually, I don't even know if time would be good in beer. I'm sure someone's tried it. They're they're like stealing rosemary. No, no, that doesn't. It's time. There we go. <laughs> Brilliant. <At> time. <laughs> That's why you got to hire like poets and stuff at your at your brewery. Mm. You know. What are you um, drinking, dude? I'm drinking just coffee. Just got a latte. Real, real interesting today. But I wanted to say my friend Martin got a cucumber shandy. It was like cucumber lime. Mm. Oh, no, no. It was it was a cucumber lime IPA. Really? It wasn't good. It wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did see that I think Fat Tire released a watermelon beer. So I'm probably going to go buy that. Dude, we just point. got Fat Tire over here maybe like a month ago, and they, they launched the best marketing campaign. Every bar, liquor store has their sign, like, and the box is right in the front. Um, mm-hmm. oh, it's, they know how to really do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, today's catchphrase is from Sir Klaus Moser. Did I get that right? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Probably some uh, old famous dude, but it was sent in by Joanne via email. So, Joanne, thank you so much for that catchphrase. And uh, if anyone else wants to get their catchphrases on the show, you can tweet us at Money Matters Man on Twitter or send us an email, listmoneymatters at gmail.com. But today, we've got Doug McCormick on the show, and Doug is the author of a new book called Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. So I'm excited to talk about uh, talk about that topic, maximizing your family's wealth. And uh, Doug, you basically see the family as a business, kind of, right? Yeah, I think it's an interesting framework to help families um, connect a bunch of disparate decisions they make about their financial life. Yeah, when I was reading over the the overview for the book, I, I thought it was interesting that you kind of make this distinction between like a labor business and an asset management business and how families kind of have to manage, manage both. Yeah, I think the, the basic premise of the book is that every family or every person actually is a business owner and they own two businesses. They own their labor business and they own their capital business, which is essentially managing their money. And I think when you think about it that way, it actually leads people to very different decisions about how to, quote, invest your labor, um, but also how to manage your financial assets. What, yeah. What really stuck with me, and just to kind of like quote what this thing says, uh, it says, most people know how to create a monthly budget, pay off debt, and meet a savings goal, but few bring the individual components together into a holistic long-term financial plan. And I guess I'd ask you, like, what, what's the difference, right? I mean, you, you save for retirement, you budget. Like, what, what, what are we missing? Yeah, I think, um, good, good question. I think, first of all, the industry is generally set up in a way that people sell products. And so everybody thinks about solving their financial problems with products, whether it be an investment product or an insurance product. And I think that uh, financial independence and wealth is actually um, best achieved with less products and better decision making. 
And, you know, I think in general, I'm, I'm not trying to advise people how to just get by financially. I'm trying to advise them how to accumulate real wealth that they can either enjoy through consumption or pass along to their heirs. And so, you know, mine's kind of like, uh, you know, turbocharged financial um, planning, if you will. So we, like a lot of people who've listened to the show, they, they weren't budgeting. You know, we told them about Mint. You know, they, they email us, it's like life-changing. Now I have a budget, my money's on track. And then, I mean, now we're telling them about um, balance sheets, and I feel like they're going to, like, jump out the window <laughs> or just, like, let their car ghost ride down the highway. Like, how is that not crazy and scary? Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, you, you got to stick to the high-level principles. First of all, when it comes to budgeting, I'm actually a fan of less less is more. And what I mean by that is I, I coach people on putting together an income statement with very high-level you know, what's your revenues or your income from your work? And then what are your major expense items? Mm -hmm. Because I find if people track a budget in a very detailed fashion, they rarely um, go back and look at how they spend it or they rarely um, change behavior. Uh, and the balance sheet, you know, I think it sounds like an intimidating thing, but in reality, it's just listing all of your assets, including your labor and your social security, and then all your liabilities. And it's a really good way to assess your kind of starting point or where you are today. Mm -hmm. So if you were doing like a, a weekly or monthly, you know, family discussion, you know, we're like how we're doing instead of saying this month I saved a thousand dollars, you say this month we're worth, you know, $30,000. Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah. First of all, I think, um, when you use these kind of tools, um, weekly and monthly are less relevant. And, you know, I think looking at your balance sheet, you know, maybe, maybe monthly, but maybe even quarterly or annually, especially as a family, gives you know, enough frequency that you can really assess where you're where you're going and you know it's not just simply what's our worth today but it's also a look at you know where our liabilities are um, and how our net worth or our, our assets are invested you know one of my big beliefs is it's not about saving your way to financial independence it's about growing your wealth to financial independence and it's a lot more fun to invest your assets in a way that your wealth grows than it is to save your way there mm. yeah you know, Andrew, I can't remember exactly who we were interviewing, but I remember we had a guest once who emphasized the importance of doing like a financial snapshot day. And she was saying it's, you know, you should do it at the beginning of the year, but uh, I, I like the quarterly idea too. And I got to agree with you, Doug. I'm not a big fan of just micromanaging your budget all the time. I would say like the only exception is if you find that you're spending too much, it's good to maybe track your expenses for a month to see where the gaps are, where we can, where you can plug up holes pretty much. So, yeah. If you look at the, you know, your your income statement in my terminology, you know, you, you look at the, your savings, mm -hmm. uh, that's your income for the month. That's obviously an important number. And then rather than focus on specific line items, I like to focus on what's a fixed cost that I can't get rid of, like rent or a mortgage or, or a car payment. Mm -hmm. And then what are variable costs like, um, you know, how, how much am I spending to go out to eat, groceries, uh, entertainment. And for me, that's a more relevant way to think about it because it, it reflects what I can change. Yeah. But, but whether I spend it on coffee or I spend it on bubble gum, I don't know that I care. Okay. You know, um, I, and I, I definitely agree with you that budgets, um, uh, I mean, I think they're important, but I think like in terms of vision, they're very short sighted. Uh, and one limitation is this month, say I save a thousand dollars, and saving a thousand dollars is great. But if I make three thousand dollars, saving a thousand dollars is like rock star status. But if I make twenty thousand dollars a month and I save a thousand dollars, I'm probably like a loser. Like, I'm just like not doing it right. 
And uh, do, does like your framework kind of take this into consideration, or, or how do you even know like what what numbers are good? Yeah, so I think you know first of all, there's a, there's an old saying uh, in the financial business. There there are a couple kinds of um, forecasts. There's lucky and there's lousy, and you know the reality is the forecast is always going to be wrong. But I think it's a valuable process because it forces you to lay out how you think you're going to spend your money, and I think um, the framework does help you think big picture because the balance sheet is your starting point and the income statement is kind of your roadmap to how you're going to get the balance sheet to where it needs to be so that you can retire comfortably. And so I think the two together, you know, I'd say the income statement is kind of a short-term measurement and the balance sheet is more of a long-term measurement. Gotcha. So Doug, I'm curious, I know that you're, you co-founded an equity management company and that's yep. what you're, you're doing today. Mm -hmm. Um, but your book, I mean, you wrote your book and you're not, you're not selling any sort of product. You're not trying to get anybody on board with anything that you're doing, any company that you're running, it looks like. So what kind of got you to the point where you wanted to write this book? Yeah, I, I, um, thanks for asking. I, I thought there, you know, a lot of Americans today struggle with financial literacy. So I thought there was an opportunity and a need to provide something different in the market that is, you know, accessible. It's written in kind of everyday language based on my own experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also holistic, and I, I think it's a little bit more rigorous than uh, you know some of the other competing works out there. So I think it is different. And you know, my personal passion is uh, I struggled with a lot of these concepts um, coming out of business school, and so it's a product of my own journey. Um, and I'm I'm trying to use the book as a way to promote awareness about veteran financial literacy and veteran okay. uh, economic empowerment. Cool. We have a lot of. Uh, veterans or, or active military people in the audience, how, how does it differ for them? Well, you know, I think, uh, first of all, most veterans will leave service without any kind of retirement benefits, just given the way that um, organization is structured. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of service members leaving on an annual basis. And most of the time when service members leave, they leave with their predominant asset being their labor asset. And right. so I think it's a really interesting um, tool for them as they think about how to translate all these great experiences and life skills they got in the service into financial independence um, and possibly entrepreneurship when they leave service. That actually brings up a really good question. I remember both my parents were in the Air Force. And uh, I know like my dad personally, top scores on whatever the career aptitude test they have there. Um, had a really good job in the Air Force, but both my parents found out that a lot of times when you leave the service, your qualifications in the service don't translate to qualifications in the civilian world. So for the people in our audience who are in the service, who are veterans or who are uh, going to be in the, eventually, what can they do to start preparing for a civilian career? Yeah, a couple things. First of all, I, I think that the skills that you acquire in the military actually do translate really well into the civilian world. But the point, the caveat to that is many service members are not good at articulating um, mm. how they translate. So they come out of service with military speak, if you will, mm. and there needs to be some education around how to translate those into things that uh, prospective employees can understand and, and to see relevance to their business. Um, you know, the, the second thing that I think, uh, you know, service members need to think about is the day you enter service, in my mind, you need to start preparing financially for the day you exit. And some mm -hmm. people will make a career out of it, but financial flexibility doesn't happen overnight. And so 
you know, the ability to have a little bit of a savings and to be able to support yourself for a period of time while you look for the right job, yeah. I think is really important. I think we, we, you know, employment is a very obtuse measurement. And I think many vets are underemployed, meaning they're working in opportunities that are, that are not maximizing their full potential. Yeah. What would you say the general mindset is when people go into the service? Is it mostly people who believe at first they're going to make it a career or do the majority kind of think they're going to get out after the four or eight years? Uh, it's a great question. I, you know, I know from my own experience, um, I didn't know much about the service when I entered. And so I was interested in serving. I believed in the mission and I thought it would be an interesting life experience, but I didn't necessarily have a view that it would make it a career. Okay. And, and I think a lot of people relate in that fashion. And then once you get in, you get a lot more information to decide, is this something I can do for a career? And, you know, candidly, I think a lot of it depends on the way your family evolves as well. It's not just an individual decision, but a family decision. Okay. Actually, yeah, that was what kind of brought my parents into the civilian world was me. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that can make it complicated. Yep. Um, okay. So personally for you, you went into the army and then how did that end up translating to you going to Harvard to get your MBA? So I, I um, went to West Point, and so as part of that um, experience, there's a commitment after, and so I served my commitment, mm-hmm. and then realized that while that was a great life experience, it was not going to be a career that I wanted to pursue, you okay. know, for, for the rest of my professional um, life, and so after my commitment, I got out, and I realized that I needed. Um, some additional skills to be competitive in the marketplace and to pursue a career in, in finance. And so I got accepted into Harvard, fortunately. Uh, you know, Harvard has a great history of, um, you know, admittance for veterans. And so there's, they were able to see my skills as, as valuable uh, or at least valuable potential. And so, you know, after Harvard, then I've, I've spent the last 20 years in some kind of finance capacity, either um, working in Manhattan at Morgan Stanley or in the investment side. So you you did your rounds there. Um, you definitely went into the entrepreneurship world. Uh, what kind of brought you to the entrepreneurship world? And w- they knowing what you know, would you have started sooner? Um, you know, good question. I, I think um, I'm I'm appreciative of my experience in the service, not because it got me ahead or got me behind, but because it was a valuable life experience. And I think diversity of experience leads to a rich life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having said that, I think entrepreneurship for most of us is the surest way to financial independence. You know, I think um, the nature of employment has changed as the economy has changed. Uh, my, my father or grandfather likely had you know, two jobs over a 35 or 40 year career. Mm-hmm. And today's millennial will likely have 10 jobs. And so I think yeah. we're, whether we like it or not, we're all becoming entrepreneurs because the, the labor market is so mobile. So I know, Andrew, you are huge on business building and I know you would love for everyone listening to this show <laughs> to go build a business. You say it all the time. I, I'm almost like so trying you and to Doug think how I can convince everyone. Are of a mind. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we say this all the time, you know, building a, a business would be great. You'll have, you know, more longevity in your career, more control and everything. How do people get started? Because on a large scale, you know, Andrew and I have a very narrow experience in entrepreneurship and yours is actually quite different than ours. But when we're just talking to somebody and we tell them you should consider entrepreneurship, what can, what are the things they can start looking out for? Because they can't yeah. just go out and start a business overnight. Can well, they? 
I, I think um, in many cases, entrepreneurship, people, when, when people hear the word entrepreneurship, they think of startup and they think of Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. big startups. So, you know, Google, Facebook type stuff. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's huge potential there. But I think for most Americans, entrepreneurship is uh, much less ambitious, but also much less risky. And so I see entrepreneurship as a valuable kind of exit strategy, if you will, from people who um, you know, are currently working in a business, they, they learn the, the key skills of the business uh, from their employer, and then at some point develop enough skills, enough relationships, and enough capital that they can start it on their own. And so I'm okay. thinking more like a real estate brokerage or, you know, a local uh, business that does some kind of maintenance for, you know, companies in the area. And those kind of businesses, I think, are much lower risk. They don't take a lot of capital. And you can really create a very nice, uh, nice business and nice, nice lifestyle. So for you, entrepreneurship is, or I guess the surest path in entrepreneurship is just to utilize the skills you already have and just make a small transition to a work situation where you have more control over what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think essentially entrepreneurship is, um, you know, changing the game. You're using the sk- same skills and the same relationships, um, but doing it for your own account, if you will, as opposed to mm-hmm. an employee-employer relationship. Yeah. But Douglas, this must pre-select a certain type of person. Not everyone can do this, right? Um, yeah, I would say not everyone can do it. But I, I, I was hoping you're going to say no, Andrew. Everyone yeah. can do it. <laughs> no, not not everyone. But I, honestly, I think it's a lot less about the skills. I don't mm-hmm. think the skills to be a successful entrepreneur are that rare. I think it's about um, the attitude. You yeah. know, and it's it's the confidence and willingness to to take what is perceived risk to go out and do it. Yeah, I think you have to make a clarification here because it's I I am also a believer that not everyone can be an entrepreneur, but I don't believe that individually every single person is is predisposed to either not entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship. It's just that the entire set of all people cannot all be entrepreneurs. It doesn't mean that you individually can or cannot. Well, so. and I also think it's a product of your circumstances beyond you. So where mm-hmm. are you in terms of your family f- profile? Um, you know, what does your financial profile look like? And so I think successful entrepreneurship is kind of the convergence of you've got the aptitude, you've got the desire, and you've got the flexibility to go do it. Yeah, exactly. But so, if, if okay. we were to break it down, um, you said like, you know, maybe a service-based fixing things in the area. So, I don't know. Cars need fixing. Air conditions need fixing. Finances need mm-hmm. fixing. Like, how do you wade in? Um, or, how, or how could you even tell if you're the type of person who should even be wading into this pool? Uh, good question. So, I would say... I feel like all our questions are good questions. I appreciate <laughs> the feedback. <laughs> So I would say if you have to ask yourself if you're the right person, you're probably not the right person. That that's my my flip answer, mm-hmm. um, and my maybe my more um, thoughtful answer would be, I think good entrepreneurs have experienced uh, consistent success in the past, and so if you're a high performer at work, mm-hmm. um, that's probably uh, you know somebody that will be a successful entrepreneur on their own. They have the same skill sets, and you know you named a couple examples of businesses. I think for me, I'm a big believer as an investor in it's easier to underwrite a quality business model than it is to underwrite, you know, growth. And so as I think about managing risk, I think if you can find your way into a business model that doesn't take a lot of capital to run, 
um, and you know is pretty consistent. And I, you talk about maintenance, and you talk about financial services. Those things all are required, whether it's a good economy or a bad economy. You know, I think you combine good skill sets and a lot of a good work ethic with a decent business model, and and your chances of success are pretty good. Yeah. A little bit of a counterpoint. I, I know personally, I asked myself, like, would I be a good entrepreneur when I was younger? Because there were certain elements of entrepreneurship that were intimidating to me. I thought, oh, the taxes and the finances are completely impenetrable, I'll, and I'll never be able to afford a lawyer or an accountant to do them for me, so I better just not do it. And what eventually led me into it was just doing small little experiments while I still had jobs, just things mm-hmm. in my free time. And like you said, once you have a consistent track record of success, you start to build that confidence. You start to actually be able to Google how do I manage the finances of a business with a little bit of confidence that you could do it yourself. And uh, one day you end up doing it full time. Totally. I think I think the game of incrementalism to improve your skill set, your knowledge base and understand the risk profile that you're comfortable with is is probably a much better approach than the big boom theory. Yeah, exactly. So I'm interested in your ideas of like the labor business and the asset management business as it relates to the family, because your book is Family Inc. And you talk about you know every family needing a family financial officer. So how does the family financial officer go about directing the labor efforts of the entire family as a unit? I understand it as, you know, as an individual issue. You're thinking about education, that kind of stuff. But are you saying like I should tell my girlfriend, hey, go get a graduate degree so we can make more money or what? Yeah. So, so let me differentiate the tools to help people make good decisions versus the way that decisions are made. And so, you know, I think every family has their own probably unique and maybe dysfunctional ways that they make decisions. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that um, you people always make value maximizing decisions. But I think the, the framework helps people determine what the best financial decisions are and then you can kind of overlay your value set there. So for example, my dad is a teacher and no one ever becomes a teacher to get rich, um, but I think for him, given his value set, his interests and his passions, that career choice made a lot of sense. Um, You know, I think in general, the labor business, there are a couple common themes. The first is um, you've gotta be realistic with your goals and your skill sets and your aptitudes and so I actually believe that College can be perhaps the very best investment um, some people make, uh, but for some people it's a horrible investment. And actually knowing that and being honest with yourself about you know you don't want to pursue a career or you don't have the aptitude to pursue college, that is a is a very good choice um, for certain folks. Um, you know I think for for individuals to think about the kinds of skill sets they hope to acquire both in college and then uh, in the professional field has a lot of uh, has a significant impact on their long-term earning potential mm-hmm. and so I think those are the kind of things that the family CFO should be advising uh, either you know himself uh, his partner or his kids about how they're procuring skills and then how they're selling those skills in the marketplace I find that many people you know they op- they maximize today's current comp at mm-hmm. the expense of acquiring skills that are going to serve them well over a 50-year career yeah so what's your philosophy for guiding the other people in your family towards better choices in the future? Like your kids are a perfect example. Are you more hands-on or do you kind of let them make their um, own choices more? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, my, this, I'm not sure if this is my own experience or in general, but I don't make anybody's choices. I give advice and people have to live with the consequences of their own decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, But there are a couple common themes that I think um, consistently re- result in higher um, 
lifetime labor. So higher education is generally good. Um, being located uh, near urban areas generally offers more economic opportunity, and it also offers the ability to change um, employers, change industries, change jobs. Um, and I think people that focus on acquiring skill sets that can be applied in a lot of different industries like you know, financial skill sets, like marketing skill sets, like human resources, like IT, I find those are kind of, for me, more interesting to pursue than pursuing skill sets that are relegated to a certain industry. Mm. So for example, for me, um, pursuing a career as a pilot or even pursuing a career as a doctor, I think is, is somewhat scary because I think those industries can change dramatically over time and there's only one place you're gonna sell those skills. Douglas, Thomas lives in Iowa. I'm like right across the water from New York City, right? And yep. in Iowa, I think there's like 100 to 200 people there, you said, Thomas? Give or take a few thousand. <laughs> Give or take a few thousand <laughs> people. And obviously there's, there's a lot of people in New York and you know it's an urban area, but um, for Thomas to go from Iowa to New York is a, a huge undertaking, a huge risk. Um, and I would say to most people would sound ridiculous. I mean, maybe he would move from where he is in Iowa to a slightly larger area nearby. Like, how do you reason this? How do you uh, execute it? Um, is it ridiculous to say that moving from Iowa is to New York is insane? I mean, no, no, I, I think, um, first, first of all, let me try to clarify the point I'm trying to bring up, which is if you're in an urban area and you don't like the job that you're currently in, or you're looking for advancement, the personal cost of relocating and finding that, uh, other job is much, much smaller, right? I yeah. mean, there's, there's a, a thousand other interesting employment opportunities for you in the area that you're currently living in. And the, the switching costs for Thomas are higher. And I think that means that he's less likely to leave his current position. And so I think it's just an acknowledgement of the importance of being able to reallocate your labor over a long-term period, 50 years, to right. the most attractive opportunities. And on that vein, yeah. you discuss this, this concept of like lifetime value of your mm -hmm. labor, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 31, I make X, this, you know, this is how much I'll earn over my lifetime. And I guess my question would be, how do you calculate that? And then how do you weigh that against maybe I should move somewhere else to increase my lifetime value? Um, so first of all, the calculation that's, you know, it's uh, basically calculated like an annuity, right? You're making some assumptions about um, how many remaining years of labor you have, some assumptions about tax rate, and some assumptions about your current income and how that grows or decreases over time. And then we're, you know, we're essentially discounting that to come up with a today's value. Um, and, and I honestly, I find the concept and the process more valuable than the specific number. Again, back to this concept of, you know, two kinds of estimates, lucky and lousy, because that there's certainly a lot of assumptions in there that are bound to be wrong. But I think the fact that you're thinking about it that way and asking mm -hmm. yourself, you know, in my current trajectory, am I going to be satisfied with this kind of future income for the next 30 years? Or do I need to reallocate my labor to entrepreneurship, to a different geography, to a different skill set. I think that's the real value, not so much the specific calculation. So taking but, your mind out of today and into like the future. Yeah. And asking yourself, okay, if I want to change the trajectory, what do I need to do today? 
um, to do that? What investments could I possibly make? And also forcing people to appreciate how long of a working life they have. You know, I think in many cases it's very hard for people mentally to think about a 50-year time horizon, but those are, you know, kind of the choices you're making. You know, one other thing I think is really important about that process, I think it highlights that for most people, you know, through age 40 or so, your biggest asset's probably your labor. And I think right. that has some interesting implications for how you think about managing the rest of your financials. Mm-hmm. And for you, it's it's pretty straightforward, right? Passive index investing, just making sure you're contributing every month. And yeah, no, I think that that's that's my primary um, recommendation. And I think in most cases, people dramatically underestimate their time horizon. Mm-hmm. You know, so for you guys today, you're you're likely time horizon unless you plan on you know, making a big purchase like a house or a vehicle or education is probably, you know, in excess of 40 years. And when you think about that kind of time horizon, I think the ability to endure risk for better return goes up dramatically. So I'm an in, I'm a fan of right. indexing for most people. I'm also a fan of significant equity exposure. Yeah. And what I really like about your kind of model here is that it takes labor into account so explicitly, because this is something I had to, had to face with my business. Um, I've been doing this podcast with Andrew for over a year now, and we've been talking about how it's a great idea to have an auto-invested, you know, passive index fund and all that kind of stuff. But I'm also running this business, and eventually I had to come to the realization that, oh, it would actually be better for me to invest some of that money that I was previously putting into my index funds into my business to pay people to do better work. I have to view my labor uh, and the business's labor, but my own labor as a potentially more valuable investment right now. Yeah, so the, I, I'm a big believer, you know, if you look at all the history um, after tax, after inflation, returns for equities are probably somewhere in the 5%, and that's some would consider that optimistic. I believe investments in education and investments in entrepreneurship, you know, can lead to, you know, uh, returns in the certainly the mid-teens and maybe uh, 20% over many years of compounding which obviously results in significant wealth. So by far and away for me, the most attractive investments are often in your education or your professional endeavors. Yeah. So I've got a question for you. You're talking about all these optimal strategies, right? It, I don't think you're explicitly saying, you know, throw away your dreams for these, but living near an urban area is uh, in general more flexible than living in a rural area. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you know, working in a, an industry that services many different industries uh, over across the board rather than kind of pigeonholing yourself is more flexible. So what would you say if, um, and I, I'm assuming you have kids, I don't actually know, but I do. I do. Okay. Yeah. So what would you say if, if one of your kids, you know, getting near college age just comes up and says, I really want to major in philosophy. It's just like totally my passion. Uh, what's your advice to them? What's your response to something like that? Given all these models and optimizing thinking, uh, I'd say go for it. Um, but go for it with an informed view of what the financial implications are of those choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in general, let me let me also say I think that um, by far and away people do best at what they're passionate about. So, you know, my my tools are important. I think to help inform decision making. But then every person needs to customize it with their own value set. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't recommend any specific actions. Often I'm recommending using a framework to help illuminate the key implications of your decision and then you got to go with what makes sense for you gotcha
You've heard about SoFi and refinancing your student loans, but you might not have heard how big the experience can really be. Meet Katie. You know, I was embarrassed to even talk about my finances. And then when I saw this opportunity to just save a few bucks, like that opened the door for me. And then I actually did start reaching out, asking for help, talking to loan advisors. And I'm not ashamed to talk about my finances anymore. What motivated you to finally refinance? I really wanted to buy a house and I thought any dollar towards saving would be a good reason. So I consolidated all my high interest rate loans and now I have a house. So (laughs) 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 win-win. How much did you actually wind up saving? Around $100 a month. Yeah. And 21 or 22 year old Katie would have been like "Eh, 100 bucks, whatever. I spend that on alcohol on the weekend. (laughs) But now I'm like, dang, like that's my meals for half the month. How did you hear about SoFi? So we have a online group globally for uh, millennials, and they sent us an email encouraging us to check out consolidating our loans. And then um, I think it was like a 0.25% interest rate deduction for going through SoFi through my company. Wow. Do you have any advice that you give younger people about student loans and the cost of education? Uh, Yeah. So student loans are a thing that you have to pay back. Like I know that it just gets dropped into your bank account at the beginning of the quarter or semester, but don't use it as free money. Use it as, I don't know, transport to your future. (laughs) (laughs) That was deep. That was deep. (laughs) (laughs) I I try. (laughs) You can now save even more because SoFi is partnered with 400 companies. Find out how you can save at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. This was actually pretty fun. See, talking about finances doesn't have to be scary. So when I think of like a balance sheet and I think of someone like Apple, who I'm invested in, um, I often think that they have like profit margins of 30%, in excess of 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, when you come down to this run your family like a business, are these things that you should take into consideration? And I mean, like how do you compare what you're doing now to what success should look like? Is it fair to compare yourself to someone like Apple? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think it's fair to compare yourself to history. Um, more so than to compare yourself to Apple, right? Because Apple's got one motive and one motive only, and that's, um, you know, in the long term, maximizing shareholder value. Right. Um, and, you know, as we define the, the family, while I think it can be viewed as a business, also has a lot of non-economic uh, elements to it that, that mm-hmm. are important in that decision-making. So I, I do think for a family to look at their savings rates, for example, and watch them improve over time or watch their balance sheet grow over time, I think that's an important um, way to look at it. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily think you know there's a, a specific goal where you say, hey, you gotta be making um, you know 30% margin on your labor and that's what your savings rate needs to be. I think it, it has to be in the context of what your retirement goals are um, yeah. You know, and in many cases, uh, you may choose it may be the right answer for you to run a deficit, right? Mm-hmm. If you're investing in education, you're actually going to show an income statement that's losing money, mm-hmm. but you're creating asset value with your labor. Yeah, I think it's important to realize you're applying these models to a family that's composed of human beings. You know, they've <laughs> all got hopes and dreams and things they enjoy doing. So, I'm a computer. If yeah. you want to be a computer, Andrew, I mean. <laughs> 
<laughs> people, some people do believe that I'm a robot, and I may be a robot programmed to not believe I'm not a robot. I don't know. I believe but, it. Uh, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know as a family, you know, you have things you want to do. You have vacations you want to take. You've got weekends you want to spend together. So I don't think it's fair to compare yourself to a profit-maximizing company like uh, Apple uh, and say, I need to be that. You know, we need to be that. Yeah. Uh, no, instead, I, you need to compare what your goals are to what you can reasonably expect to provide a comfortable living for you, inheritance for your kids later on. You know, set goals that are reasonable, but also tempered by living an enjoyable life. Totally. I think it's about understanding where you are today, understanding where you want to go to, and then what's the plan to get me there. And I think all the business tools um, do that very elegantly. Mm -hmm. So part of your book centers on inheritances. And I'm curious, what what's your thought about structuring inheritance for your kids? And how do you balance that with your want to let them grow up responsibly and having to sort of figure things out for themselves and build things for themselves and not yes. be like a trust fund baby right yeah what, like rely on your success um, trustafarians <laughs> yeah no listen i think it's a really interesting point i think everybody assumes that inheritance um is a good thing and i think it can be a very powerful tool for the family um but i think there can be a lot of really negative behaviors if you have an inculcated you know, the right values and the right skill sets. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I do try to work hard in my own family of um, sharing the values that I've established over time. I think succession in financial management is probably one of the most neglected elements of, um, you know, skills that as a family we don't pass down. And, right. you know, there's a lot of reasons why that is. It's a very sensitive topic. Uh, people are uncomfortable sharing the details. Mm -hmm. My own experience has been that, um, Forcing respons financial responsibility on uh, the, the children of the family at whatever age they are early is valuable because I think the more chances you can expose somebody to the concepts and the more opportunity you can give them to have what I considered controlled failure, mm -hmm. the better. And so I, I love the concept of, you know, giving young people a credit card with a minimal limit, let them screw it up a couple times and understand, you know, how that works and how that can get you upside down rather than never give them that chance of failure and then have them inherit a lot of money and, you know, get upside down on a large scale. Yeah. So, so I, I try to push that as accountability and responsibility down early. And, and let's face it, the, you know, this journey of financial literacy is a long journey. It takes years. And so you got to be patient and realize that people are going to make mistakes. You said financial succession. And uh, that's, that sounds scary. You said it was a difficult topic, so I totally think we should touch on it. Um, I, I agree that it is incredibly important. And I know that you know companies find successors for the CEOs and they leave. Um, and I would even say that most people uh, did not get any financial succession training. I mean, the, the discussions of money in a family was, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. So how do you approach this? And how far do you go? I mean, do you tell your kid who's 15 your after-tax income and all your expenses and the amount you have invested? Or is it more about the abstraction? Yeah, yeah so uh, a, couple, a couple different questions there. I think, first of all, in terms of succession, I think there are kind of three elements to succession. The first is, uh, if by chance you suddenly passed do, does somebody know where all the assets are? Does somebody know where to call so you can figure it out? And your family is not only dealing with the loss of a family member, but can't can't find the money. The second element of it is, do you have your general uh, estate in order such that you have a trust and some of the basics 
um, such that ownership is clear. Mm-hmm. And then the third is this lifelong process of teaching people how to responsibly um, manage the family resources. Um, and on that one, you know, I think the concepts you cannot start too early. Um, and I think the amount of detail that you share and the implications for that in terms of have you just ruined someone's work ethic because they now f- believe that they are wealthy, I right. think that's really situationally dependent. Some some young people are very um, able to deal with that um, at an early age, and I think others, uh, it takes many years to get that maturity. I will say um, I believe a big element of this successful succession is a focus on education because mm-hmm. by encouraging education in the family, you're you know, encouraging their own financial independence because you're developing that, that asset. And I also think it generally gets um, the family more acquainted with some of the skill sets that are going to be important for financial management. Yeah. So in your mind, do you have like a specific date or maybe a specific point in a child's development where you would pass along the inheritance or is it more need based? Because for the longest time, I believed that my parents had no plans or ability to help me pay for college. So Mm -hmm. I ended up going, got scholarships. It went really well. I was very fortunate. Um, Had a conversation with my dad the other day and he told me we actually planned on assisting you uh, if we needed to, but we wanted you to figure it out for yourself and we wanted you to prove that you were able to do it responsibly. And then if you ended up needing help, we were willing to do it, but Mm -hmm. we never had to. So we never told you that Mm -hmm. was the plan. So is that kind of your plan or is there like a, okay, I can tell you have, you know, that your head screwed on right. So I'm just going to give it to you. Yeah, no, I I don't think there's a right answer to this question in my own circumstance. um, I've created, um, I guess, decisions such that if something happened to my wife or I, my kids would be provided for in the context of education and things that are considered necessities. Okay. And then they would get access to wealth uh, in increments of five years until they're 40. And so okay. I think that, that gives um, the opportunity for them to acquire some wealth, um, understand how to manage it a little bit, but not have access to all of it such that if they made mistakes, there would be some checks and balances. Yeah. So there's never a situation where the whole lion's share is going to get dumped on them at once. Yeah. I mean, you may, you know, you may have somebody, uh, that has that maturity and that skill set at an early age where that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not where I think I am. And so, you know, I think it's a kind of case by case situation. Yeah. And I would say one of the only cases I could think of where that would be an appropriate situation is if they wanted to start a business and they needed an investment or something. Yeah, but even that I think can be accommodated for in the, in the context if you've got a trustee that understands the values you know that you're espousing for your kids. I think that's an investment. I don't think that's mm-hmm. consumption. So I think that could be supported for. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying I, I can't think of many personal. Um, expenses that would justify needing to access the entire inheritance all at once. Totally you know, agree. Totally. Almost every personal expense could be paid for incrementally instead. Yep. So we rarely talk about um, legacy beyond like, you know, you providing for your kids if you die or, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, perhaps creating an endowment fund at a college because you're oh so wealthy and then you could help, you know, people like Thomas get scholarships in the future. And I guess, where do you put the importance of this? And when do you start? Because there are people who, you know, maybe they're 25, you know, they're just getting started in their lives. Is it important to start planning for this now? 
Is it something that you need to wait for when you reach, you know, the cool million? What's like the the right approach to this? Yeah, so so let me let me differentiate between um, you know normal course giving and then uh, you know kind of estate planning giving. So I think as part of being a good member of the community and and being uh, a good person, you know, we all should be thinking about giving in normal course. Um, having said that, when it comes to estate planning giving, uh, you know I I have a view that's probably a lot of charities aren't necessarily going to be happy with. I think that should be done very late in life for a couple reasons. One, I generally think that um, individuals are better managers of that money and are likely to grow it faster than the charities themselves. That's point one. Point two, I think a lot of unknowns become known by the time you're late in life. Um, you know, your returns may have been great. You may have made a lot of money. You may not. And I would hate to see someone give a big gift in their 40s or 50s to then determine they had a health care problem or something that there they kind of needed that mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that the flexibility to give late in life is much better and then the last thing is I think um, you know charitable giving is a skill and I think it takes a lot of years to be involved with charities to give them a little bit of money watch how they use that money be um, invested not only with your capital but with your labor to be directly involved with the charity I think makes you a very informed giver and so I'm a I'm a believer in you know, finding a couple charities that you develop a knowledge base around that you can be more than just a source of capital, but um, capital and leadership. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Explain, um, you said giving should be regular course, and I agree. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe can you further define that? Like if you donate- I think it means three not waiting. Well, like, no, I mean, so I get that, but does it mean like three hours a week, you know, and you're painting park benches and that's what you could do and that's sufficient or is it just a dollar number? And if you're young, then you don't necessarily know, like you said, which charities will handle it best. So, yeah, no, I, I think it's, um, I'd say it like this, which is, you know, there are all these things that as part of being a good member of my community, I try to support, whether it be the local um, you know, arts project, whether it be my kids' schools, whether it be the local um, sporting teams or causes that I'm particularly passionate about. And so I try to, you know, give my time and also um, support modestly um, the financial needs of those organizations. But I think, you know, candidly, it's, it's um, not of magnitude that it becomes a relevant planning factor as I think about my estate. And so it's just kind of um, the way I would say it's the way the same way I buy groceries and I make other monthly expenditures. Those are all kind of rolled up into the monthly budget and big gifts are more thoughtful in the context of where can I be strategic and likely um, later in life unless you've been very fortunate to accumulate a significant amount of wealth, you know, early in your career. Is your giving focus more local then? Um, you know, my day-to-day -day stuff is, I, mm -hmm. I, I mentioned earlier that I'm um, relatively involved in, in veterans issues, and so mm -hmm. I'm involved with a couple organizations that um, support um, veterans' causes, and those um, are national in, in scope, just given the nature of the problem. Great. Well, Doug, it was amazing talking to you today, and uh, I know we mentioned the book Family Inc. Do you have a website people can go to or a way people can get in yep. contact or learn more? Yep. Uh, so familyinc.com is the website and it's available on Amazon um, and it's currently the uh, the best seller in the wealth management category so oh uh, congratulations get, yeah. getting some good receptivity thank you appreciate All right. it thank you hey guys thanks for the time
Yeah, for sure. Guys, thank you so much for listening. If you uh, want to grab a copy of Doug's book, familyinc.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Money's Ma- Money Matters Man or send us questions, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com or join our community over at listenmoneymatters.com slash join. So thanks for listening and we will see you in next week's episode. Later, guys. Tell your friends about this show. We'd like to thank SoFi for supporting the show. If you have debt, you should make it cheaper. Visit SoFi.com for details. Take care of business every day. <laughs>